If you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. After our sermon this morning, we're going to sing a song that is probably a well-known Christmas song to many of you. It's called, What Child Is This? And while many of us could sing this probably from memory, I think it's actually a really appropriate question to ask. Every time that we come to the Christmas season, the Christmas holidays, I think it's right for us to ask, what child is this? And before we move on with the Sunday school answer that this child is Jesus, let's use John chapter 1 as a reminder of the truth of this child. And let's ask this question with real curiosity. What child is this? What kind of person and man and baby is this? Who is this child? So let's read our text this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 1. We're going to go through the first 18 verses. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So in reading our text this morning, we're going to ask that question throughout it. What child is this? Well, the first way that we see the answer to that question in verses 1 to 5 is this is the eternal Son. This is the Word. John begins his gospel with a prologue. These first 18 verses are the introduction to his whole book. And it is meant, I think, to transport us as his audience back to the beginning of the world and even before that. See, John wants to draw our attention to the creation narrative. I don't know if you picked it up as we were reading through this, but this sounds very similar to what Moses writes in Genesis 1. We read about in the beginning, we read about God, we read about creation, and we read about light. See, I think that John is signaling to us, much like Moses, that this is a description of origins. And when you think about this, this concerns every worldview. 
It doesn't matter what you believe, you have to come to account of the beginning of things, the origins of things. But I think what John is saying here is that we as Christians, we who are followers of this word, are not only concerned with the origins of things, the creation of things, but the recreation of things. That John's gospel is about a new creation that is coming. And we read about a participant in that creation from the beginning and who is obviously still present now. And John calls him the Word. The Word was in the beginning. And he was with God, but he was also God. See, this Word is not just a spectator, but he's a participant in creation. Just as much as God himself. And John goes as far as to describe him as being God. Eternal like God, yet distinct from God as one who is with him but also God. Confused yet? It's okay. Yet we see here that this word is not an idea. This word is not a concept. This word is not a force. This word is a person. He was in the beginning. And then, John makes a claim about what this person, this word, has authority and right to. Verse 3, All things were made through him. And if that wasn't clear enough, and without him was not anything made that was made. It's as though we're looking at a masterpiece and John is our tour guide, but he wants to draw our attention to the signature in the corner. See all of this beauty, see all of this wonder, see all of this grand creation. All of it is from the Word. Therefore, the Word is clearly not a creation, but is the creator himself, forever existing with God. And this is not the first time in our Bibles that this type of language has shown up concerning the word. In fact, this shows up maybe even most clearly in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 8.22 says this, speaking of the word, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up At the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped. Before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he made the earth with its fields. Or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man." See, this is the word described as intimately involved in creation with God the Father. Delighting in the Father and He Himself being the Father's delight. But this isn't where John ends in describing Him. Verse 4 and 5 give us two more descriptions. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has overcome it. See, I hope you're continuing to hear these echoes of Genesis 1, that in the beginning was God, and what did God create? Light in darkness. Well, we see that that light was Him Himself. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. 
And here's John's point. The subject of John's gospel, the point of his whole book, what he's putting together, is about this word. Through whom all creation comes, even life itself. In him was life and light for all things, but particularly for men. See, no one has life apart from this word, and that includes you. If you are here this morning, if you have breath in your lungs, if you have a beating heart within your chest, then you owe your life to this word. No man has life apart from him. And we find out as we continue to follow John's narrative that this man then comes. And we read in other gospel accounts that this man was born as a child. So this child in a manger, who is he? What child is this? This is the eternal ever-existing, all-creating Son of God. This is the Word. We'll come back to this idea of light and darkness in a minute. But next, what child is this? Well, verses 6 to 8 tell us that he is the hope foretold. The hope foretold. Look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So John comes and introduces us to another John, John the Baptist. And we saw a few weeks ago as we were walking through Matthew how impactful John's ministry was, how important it was in the flow of history and the ministry of Christ. See, John was the loudest and final signpost of the coming of the Messiah. He was the culmination of these prophetic prophecies concerning a forerunner who would prepare the way of the Lord. See, John was the final sign that God was fulfilling his promises before the coming of the Messiah. John, while not the light, his role is to bear witness about the light. He is to serve as this final prophet, as it were, before Christ and bear testimony about him. This was his whole role as a minister, as a prophet, as Elijah. Look down in verse 15, just a description of John's role here, what, is, what he understood his role to be. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Go now to verse 29 in chapter 1. The next day he, speaking of John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me, comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now what's interesting here is how John describes this man. Here he comes, a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now if we know anything about the timeline of John and Jesus, maybe we think John is confused about this one coming before him. But clearly John means to point us back to what the author of this gospel points back to, that this Jesus, that this Son, that this Lamb of God existed before the world began. That's why He ranks before me, because He was before me and has always been before me. See, John's public witness is an acknowledgement to the eternal nature of the Son. John has the privilege of being this, this kind of forerunner, this first to announce to the world that the light 
has come. The one prophesied of old has come into the world truly. And John was so much a forerunner, I think this is interesting, John was so much a forerunner that even his dad recognized that this would be John's role while John was still in the womb. If you'll remember from Luke's gospel, we have this account of Zechariah, John's father, and he says this, and you, child, speaking of John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And what's his role? What's John going to do? To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby, and this might be my favorite Christmas text, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. See, John was reminding us that this word, this son, was the hope foretold. The light promised long ago was coming into the world. And yet we're going to see next that in spite of this good news, it was not received as good news by all. Verses 9 to 13, what child is this? He is the light of the world. Look at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, John introduces us to this concept of light. He's already said it before that in him was life and this light was the light of men. But now we see that there was a variance in response of the men whom this light was coming to. See, Jesus, by his light and his ministry, brings illumination. And this is, this is one of the attributes of light, right? It is a revealer of things. And this seems to be what John's picking up on, that this light was coming into the world and it reveals... The state of man. It reveals the hearts of men. Also in Luke's gospel, we have Simeon. You remember Simeon? He was an old man who was praying regularly that the Lord would allow him to see the Messiah before he dies. And he gets this opportunity. He gets to see the Messiah. And this is his response in Luke 2. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And speaking of Mary and Joseph, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that, what is the light doing? So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. See, Jesus comes into the world, and he'll even go on to say later in this gospel that he didn't come into the world for judgment, but that his word would serve as a judgment. See, Jesus comes in and he sets the standard. He comes in and reveals who is responding to him? Who is of God and who is of not? 
who is not of God. And notice that John's indictment specifically lands on the Jewish people. Verse 11, he came to his own. He came to the Israelites. He came to those who were given the oracle of God. He came to those who possessed these prophecies concerning the light. And his own people did not receive him. See, when the light comes into the world, it reveals true blindness. And this ought to come as a warning to us. I mean, just look at these drastically different responses, right? There were those who did receive him, and there were those who did not receive him. And I don't think this is depicted in any greater detail than in Matthew's gospel. Matthew, concerning the birth of this child, speaks of a group of Gentiles coming from the east and Jerusalem. Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. These Gentiles from the east, they see the sign. They they have been watching for this, and now they come worshiping this king. But what is the response on the other side? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Now, I think we can read this and assume, well, yeah, Herod's a bad guy. He turns out to be a a man who commits genocide. But then notice what Matthew tells us. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. See, Jesus will go on to make this point later in John chapter 9. He speaks to the blindness of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees ask him, are you saying that we're blind? Jesus actually says it's much worse. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So you think that you know what's going on. You think you see clearly, but you are blind to the light. And this ought to be a sobering truth to us. That we can be a part of the things of God. We can hear the things of God. We can assume ourselves to have sight. And yet our response to Jesus reveals whether we really have that side or not. We can be blind, but convince ourselves that we see. And we see that there were those that received the light. But what was the difference? Were they more clever? Were they more aware? Were they more godly? Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now I think we can read this in the English and misconstrue the order here. It can sound as though, as John is saying, that these people contributed to their birth. All of us standing here this morning, if we looked logically at our own physical birth, we would say we contributed nothing. The same thing is true with spiritual birth. That's what verse 13 makes clear. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Whose will was it that brought about this birth? It was God's. See, John will picture Jesus saying this later in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, a famous passage because of John 3.16. But if we look before that in Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus... 
He confuses Nicodemus because he tells him, Truly, truly, I say to you, one must be born again. One cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. You see that Jesus is even relating this idea of birth and sight. That you must be born again in order to see the kingdom, to receive the light. You must be born again. This is what is otherwise known as regeneration. And it's evident throughout the scriptures that this is a work of God. To bring about new birth. To bring about a new heart that then receives the light. Later in John's gospel, John chapter 3, that we will see more of next week. We'll flip over there. John chapter 3, look at verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, this light is the great revealer of the hearts of man. See, a heart that has been born of God wants the things of God. A heart that is dead does not want the things of God. See, the problem with humanity is not as though we're in a dark room groping for the light switch. Rather, the picture is much graver. The picture is that we are in the dark room, and in our sin we see the light under the door. And we see feet approaching, shadows approaching, knowing that that door is about to be opened. And you know what we do? We cower in the corner in fear, lest the door be opened and we be exposed. So what is the difference? The difference is a work of the Spirit, a work of God. Notice that even in that passage, John chapter 3, it could be read in such a way that, okay, we do this and we do that and, that and that works out who we are. But notice that even our works, that last clause there, so that in it, so that it may be clearly seen that his works, even our works, have been carried out in God. See, John makes clear that this work of God, this recreation, this new creation narrative is, just like the first one, a work of the word of God. Just as God created humanity or light and humanity, God is recreating light and humanity. God is breathing light, life into man again. So this morning, if you are in God, if you are in Christ, if you have joyfully received the light, then you owe thanksgiving and gratitude to God. Because it means you were born again. Yet as we go on, before we can experience new birth, another birth must take place. Look at verses 14 to 18. What child is this? This child is the glory of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. See, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the pinnacle of creation is the creation of man. And here we see the pinnacle of this new creation is the incarnation of the man. Is the coming of the Messiah. The birth of this child is the pinnacle of this new creation. This word, which we have seen is God, has now taken on flesh. Not only did this word come to man, but he became a man. And this word here dwelt among us. This is meant to remind us of the tabernacle. It's meant to remind us of the presence of God on earth. That the physical residence of the glory of God was housed in a tent. And then it was housed in a temple. But now the manifestation of the glory of God is housed in flesh and bone. You know, when Solomon, who created the the temple, who built the temple... He marvel, he's marveling at what God has done. But he asks this question, which I think this is interesting. Up to this point, this is the most glorious structure ever built. And it contains the very presence of God. And what does Solomon ask? But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. See, Solomon even diminishes the importance of his own temple, the greatest creation of Israel, which housed the presence of God. And he asks, is this really enough? Or is there something more? And there is something more. Pleased as man with men to dwell. See, Jesus comes as the glory of the Father. He comes as the manifestation of the glory of God, the revelation of God. And notice what he is full of. He is full of grace and truth. And here we have to acknowledge the mystery of the incarnation. The mystery of the coming of Christ. That the eternal son of God, ever existing with God, now takes on human flesh. Inserts himself into space and time, possessing a body just like you and I have. But in doing this, in his taking on of humanity, he does so without losing, mixing, or diluting an ounce of his divinity. See, in the person of Jesus, he is both fully God and fully man. This one man is full of grace and truth. That has never been a description of any other man or woman on the face of the earth. But yet this one is full of grace and truth. He is filled to the brim, permeated with throughout. And this is his nature, that he himself is the truth of God, the revelation of God, the image of the invisible God. And yet, in an act of condescension, forever dwelling in the flesh of a man. Dwelling forever in the body of a human. Colossians 1.19, For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And it's out of the overflow of his godness, out of the overflow of his divinity, 
that we have received something. Look at what it says in verse 16. For from his fullness, out of who he is by nature, we all have received grace upon grace. Now, I don't think John is trying to describe a second helping of grace, similar to the way that I eat mashed potatoes at Christmas, spoonfuls upon spoonfuls. No, I think that John is describing grace in the place of grace. If you have an ESV Bible, it might even have a footnote there that says grace in the place of grace. What I think John is saying is that there was a, a form of grace that God has had extended to his people. But now with Jesus, there is a greater grace that he is supplying. Why do I say this? Well, I think we see this description in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 17, for. Anytime you see a conjunction like this, for, so that, because, what you need to see is an argument taking place. Something is being stated, and now we have the ground or the reason for that argument. So, grace in the place of grace. What does that mean? Well, it means that the law was given through Moses. This was a form of grace. Grace in that God had revealed himself to a people. Remember, this is the Exodus account in the giving of the law, that he had rescued his people. He had shown himself supreme, even over the mightiest king and nation the world had ever seen. And he reveals himself to a people. He says, I am your God and you will be my people. And what does he give them? He gives them his law. He sets them apart. But here was the problem. While the law constituted the people, the law could not save the people. It was a grace to reveal sin, but it was never a grace to erase sin. I mean, you just look at Israel's history, right? They have times of repentance, but then most of their history is spent in a constant decline away from God. But what does God do? He brings grace in the place of grace. For, second clause, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, the same truth that existed before the dawn of time, the same truth that existed in the giving of the law is still present in Jesus. But what is present in that truth is the grace of God. A.W. Pink puts it well. Speaking of the grace of God shown in the Old Covenant and now in the New Covenant. But grace and truth were never fully revealed till the Savior himself appeared. In him, grace and truth were personified, magnified, and glorified. See, it's as though at the fall of man, when sin and creation, or creation was plunged under the curse of sin, humanity entered a long night. But God, in the giving of the law and the revealing of himself, lights a candle, a flicker of hope giving them a glimpse of what God was like and what God would do, but it is not the full picture. It does not provide full illumination. God gave this law through Moses, and it was indeed grace, because the God of light does not owe rebellious people a flicker or a ray. And yet this candle was a sign, and around this candle were prophecies, Prophecies, not that we just need more candles, 
Not that we need more law. If we just got enough candles or maybe we can discover electricity and we can make our own lights. No, God never intended us for that to extrapolate out. No, what did God say in those prophecies? That the sun was coming over the horizon. Never to need a candle again. A.W. Pink puts it this way in contrasting law and grace. See, law addresses men as members of the old creation. But grace makes men members of a new creation. Law manifested what was in man, which is sin. But grace manifests what is in God, which is love. Law demanded righteousness from men, and grace brings righteousness to men. Law sentences a living man to death, and grace brings a dead man to life. Law speaks of what men must do for God, and grace tells of what Christ has done for men. Law gives knowledge of sin, but grace puts away sin. Law brought God out to men, but grace brings men in to God. And notice how John closes his prologue here in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. See, I think this is, again, to remind us, not just of creation, but of the author of Genesis. I think this is to bring us to to our minds, Moses. Because what is Moses' request on Mount Sinai? Can you tell me your name? Can you show me your glory? Can you give me a glimpse of what you look like? And you remember God's answer? No. If I showed you myself, it would be too much for you. It would destroy you. So instead, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to cover you with my hand. And then when my back is turned, I'm going to remove my hand so that you might catch a glimpse of my back. This is God showing Moses great grace. I'm going to show you a glimpse of my glory, but you couldn't handle the whole thing. See, in the Old Covenant, under the law, it was impossible to see God and live. There was, no man to, there was no way for man to obtain the necessary righteousness and holiness to be exposed to the glory of God because it would mean our destruction. So in the Old Covenant, you cannot see God and live, but in the New Covenant, at the coming of Christ, you cannot live without seeing God. See, Moses had to be shielded from the back of God. But in the coming of the Messiah, God himself is laid on his back in a manger. See, verse 18, I think, is for people like me. People who need about seven repeats before the point comes across. See, John recaps everything that he has told us. That no one has seen God because to see God with nothing but God's law is judgment and death. Yet the Son... The Word, who is also God, who has been God and was at God's side, ruling and reigning, He, the only God, has revealed Him to us. See, Jesus, in the incarnation, in His coming, is the fullness of deity, veiled in human flesh as the true and final revelation of God. This is why Paul will go on to say in 2 Corinthians that if you want to see God, If you want to see his glory, if you want the answer to Moses' request, where do you look? In the face of Jesus Christ. And so, what does this mean? 
What is the incarnation? What is, what is the significance of this child? What does Christmas signal for us? Well, four simple things. Simple in that they're easy to describe, weighty in that they're hard to follow. Christmas signals that we worship the Son. See, the coming of Jesus means that you owe your allegiance and your worship to Him. If John's description is at all right, then he is indeed the eternal Son of God. And then your response to Him is the most important thing about you. See, I think we can float through life as though Jesus is some sort of sentimental counselor. As though he is just maybe simply a reason for a season. But here we see that Jesus is the reason for all things. Jesus is God. And so register it in your mind, in your heart, that Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. And he is worthy of your attention. He is worthy of your affection. He is worthy of your adoration. So what captures that instead? Where do you spend your attention? Where are your affections drawn to? What do you adore in this life? In other words, who do you worship? He deserves everything from us. He deserves the songs of praise from our church. So let's continue to sing loud. He deserves the, the worship of your family. He deserves your personal devotional time. He deserves everything about you and your life. Are you worshiping him in all of life? But Christmas also signals not only do we worship him, but because we worship him, we, like John, announce him. Christmas signals to us that we have an obligation to, in turn, share the light that we have received. John the Baptist is a forerunner of Christ, but he is also a prototype of us as evangelists, as ones who have reckoned with the light and then make it clear to others so that, as John seeks to make happen in his ministry, so that they might believe in him. I don't fully understand this, but somehow in the sovereignty of God, there will be people in your life who will never know of this light unless you tell them. So you have an obligation to announce him. Are you doing that with your kids? Is your home filled with announcements that Christ is king? That he has truly come and he is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father? Are you announcing him in your workplace? Are you announcing him with your family members? If this is the truth, then you have this obligation. So really, this comes down to you do believe what John is saying or not. So we worship him, we announce him, and then we see here, we receive him. This is the proper response to this announcement, to respond in faith and belief and obedience. Do you believe that Jesus has come? Do you believe that he is the glory of the Father revealed to sinful men and women like you and me? Or are we tempted to just take note of the facts surrounding Jesus, take note of these narratives, and then simply become numb to them? Maybe, maybe this morning, for the first time, 
you have a sense that there is a majesty and magnificence to Jesus that you have never wrestled with. Have you considered these truths and what they mean for you? If so, would you respond in faith? Would you receive Christ? Would you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, born to take on flesh and die in your place? Would you receive this word? Would you, maybe for the first time, receive the light of the world in whom is the life of man and life for you? And if you have received him, then lastly, Christmas signals that we hope in him. If you have received him in hope, then rest in the fact that your hope died and then rose again. That this baby who was in the manger grew up, was born in flesh, and was a man for 33 years on this earth. And then in one moment, his life was taken away from him. He was killed on a sinner's cross, on a criminal's through a criminal's execution in your place, in your stead. And then, as the vindication of this recreation, as the true sign that new life was available to all who would receive him, he raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he lives to make intercession for his people. Those of us who have been given the right to become children of God, who have been born of God, He is ruling and reigning for us, ever to be God and man, but one day to return for us. And so we have hope in Him. So what child is this? He is God eternal. He is the Word of God, the Son of God. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the firstborn of a new creation. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the word of God made flesh. He is the revelation of God. He is the glory of the Father. He is the presence of God with man. He is ever a man and will remain a man. He is the life of man and he is the light of the world. What child is this? He is Jesus. Jesus.